Australian author Mia Friedman says that being a parent is like being broken up with very slowly. She says, you don't actually parent just one person. You parent many, many different people who are all your child. There's the newborn, the baby, the toddler, the preschooler, the primary aged kid, the preteen, the adolescent, the full-blown teen, the young adults, and then the adult. They all answer to the same name. They all call you mom. And you never ever notice the inflection point where one of these people turns into the next. You never get to properly say goodbye to the little people who grow up because you don't notice the growing, the changing. Except when Facebook sends you those memory reminders that invariably make me cry because it's like showing me the face of someone I can never see again, not in that way, not at that age. If you're a parent, you know this is true, and sometimes devastatingly so. As much as we raise our children to become adults and to be independent, it still breaks our hearts to be broken up with slowly. When our children are small, we're the center of their worlds. They depend on us for everything. They wouldn't be able to survive without us. And then they slowly become more independent. They go from being those dangerous toddlers that that can't be left alone into a, from, a, from then into a blink of an eye, they're slamming doors on us and screaming what we have long suspected that we are, in fact, the worst parents who ever lived. <laughs> when I came to this church, my youngest was just a toddler. She was two years old. She was Mallory and Ellie's age. She now reads and walks home from the bus stop alone. And she keeps her friends secrets, and she can competently feed the dog and make herself cereal. She could live without me, practically. It happens so fast. But I feel like Zebedee maybe got kind of a bum deal. Happened a little too fast for him. One morning, he was fishing with his sons, James and John, and by that afternoon, they had left him to follow the carpenter-turned-prophet named Jesus. Now, in the first century, fishermen were not rich, and there were no such thing as a 401k. So Zebedee had planned, like anyone would in that time, that his sons would continue the family business to take care of him in his old age. Whenever I heard this story growing up, I thought, I just thought, you know, as a child, well, of course they followed Jesus. He's God. They had to. And in my mind's eye as a child, I saw people with these circular zombie eyes, you know, like in a cartoon, like in a, like in a trance, like we must follow, like they didn't have a choice. That's, that's what I thought when I, was, when I was a child. And yet nothing in the life and ministry of Jesus indicates that he ever forced anyone to do anything. Remember the rich young ruler who came and asked how he could follow and when he heard he was like, not for me, sorry. Judas, who Jesus knew would betray him. Any of other of Jesus' disciples who abandoned him on the night that he was arrested. It was not the way of Jesus to coerce or force or brainwash or guilt trip or manipulate. It still isn't. So James and John must have gone willingly 
And for reasons of their own choosing, when they followed Jesus that day and left their dad, Zebedee, in the lurch. Try and imagine what circumstances would force you to make a decision that would change the course of your life like that. What would it take for you to be that desperate? As I said before, fishermen in that time were not rich. In fact, they were completely subject to the emperor because the emperor owned every fish in the sea. So no, no matter how amazing their catch was, it was all subject to unfair taxation. So fishermen could never get ahead. But it had to be more than poverty that they were looking for, right? Yeah, okay, being a fisherman wasn't that great of a job. They couldn't get rich, but they couldn't follow Jesus to be rich because Jesus often said, hey, listen, I'm homeless, right? I don't have a place to lie my head except for a rock. And the disciples often would eat grain, raw grain from nearby fields when they were hungry. So it wasn't to be rich. It wasn't to increase their status in the community. It wasn't a magical hex that made them follow. I think it was a decision based on hope and desire to base their life on something more than catching the emperor's fish all the days of their life. A call to something more than just existence. James and John went from babies who probably lived on their mother's backs most of the day, to toddlers who got in the way most of the day, to competent fishermen who were a part of the family business, to young people who moved forward into the unknown to pursue hope. Something beyond the imperial violence that ruled the day. Something above the locked-in social hierarchy and caste system that made it impossible for anyone to evade their birthright. Something that traded resignation for action. And I pray that when he wasn't cursing his kids for abandoning him, Zebedee was smiling and hopeful for these two that he loved. Hopeful that they found what they were hoping for. Hopeful that they found something more than just existence. Thankfully for us today, even if our children move all the way across the world, we can still FaceTime them, we can chat with them, we can text them, we can email them, and we can find out all the details of their lives. We can find out what they ate for lunch every single day if we want. We can take a plane or train to visit them, and we can, and we can communicate with them constantly. But the choice that James and John made was far more serious than that. They left Zebedee and his fishing boat with the very real possibility that they would never see him again. It was courageous and possibly permanent decision. So what do we, as a community of faith, do with this call story in our gospel this morning? How does it speak to us? How do we recognize these young people who are willing to leave everything that they knew behind for hope how do we see that in our own stories? Where are we called beyond our best laid plans or cautious futures into the Spirit of God? You may no longer be a toddler or even a third grader, 
but that does not mean you are not growing and changing. You're a different person today than you were one year ago. Things have happened in your life that have deepened your perspective, broken your heart, scared you to death, given you a renewed hope in humanity, toughened your skin, given you new skills and knowledge, helped you find a support system you didn't know you needed. And one year from today, you'll be more different still. We're fooling ourselves if we think we're not changing. Everything is all the time. So will we change in a way that will be a part of the healing of the world? At each step in our journey of growth and discovery, God invites us into something more, something beyond the imperial violence of the day, something above social hierarchy and bigotry, something that trains in resignation for action, something that leaves the familiar to embrace the extraordinary possibility of God. We, as a community of faith, have the task of revealing Christ in our life together. We're fishers of humans. It's so much fun to think about the ways that we collect each other, that we celebrate one another, that we care for each other. And if we're doing that right, we'll be beckoned further and further into the hope and prophetic nature of the love of God. We will be invited into things that are messy and tragic now because we believe God when God says that God will make all things new. We believe in the power of the resurrection. We believe that love always wins. And if love hasn't won, it's not over yet. That is why we serve our homeless neighbors through Family Promise. It'd be a whole lot easier not to do that, right? We go and we see the, the children running around our church that if they weren't here, might be under an overpass. One afternoon, a woman came in to my office and told me that she and her eight-year-old had slept under an overpass the night before. And I called Family Promise, and they came and picked her up that afternoon. That is a real possibility. It's hard to, to, to acknowledge those things. It's hard to look at that. But we do it anyway because we have the hope of God in us. It's why we're sponsoring a man who has been in prison for six years, two of those years in solitary confinement. We call him brother and we believe for him a new day is coming in the resurrection power of Jesus, even though the world would prefer to be afraid and ostracize him. That is why we welcome everyone at the table of God's grace without caveat, while other churches try and define the kingdom of God in their own image. It is why we bring our children here who are almost unrecognizable to us from one year to the next because we know that they're growing and moving outside of our grasp and we want them to have a true north, a faith that accompanies them when we cannot so that when they step out, it is in the spirit of God and toward healing and wholeness for the world. May we trust God enough to let go of the ways and dreams and plans that we need to, to embrace God's love and future. May we be led by the Spirit of God into new adventures, and may we reveal Christ in our lives together.
Amen. Let's sing. What is Jesus even talking about? I mean, blessed are the grieving. It doesn't feel blessed when your heart is cut out of your chest. Blessed are the meek. Not the last time I checked, you don't get anything if you're meek. Blessed are those who are reviled and persecuted. It's terrible. It sounds awful. One star Jesus would not recommend. We are, after all, 21st century Americans. We get to judge everything we see and decide whether we're going to come back or not. And we were raised with an ethos of winning and dominance. We know what it looks like to be blessed. It's getting the crown or gold medal or five stars. Hashtag blessed means that all is going well in the world, that the sun is shining as it is today, and we're having a good hair day. It's most certainly not losing. It is most certainly not grieving, and it's not being reviled and persecuted. And yet, here we sit with this uncomfortable message from our Messiah. You are blessed when it feels least like you are being blessed. At the end of the day, I guess we don't really understand what blessing means. Our Old Testament maybe can help us a little. It speaks to an unfaithful people on trial. These folks were not to be tried by, um, by other humans, but by God and the rest of creation. They were to look to the mountains as their jury. I love that part of the text, y'all. It is so beautiful. I think all too often we look at the creative world as, um, as our resources, something for us to take. Everything we see, we can take and access and benefit from, but that should not be our posture to this incredible earth that God created. Instead, the topography and flora and fauna of this earth are our roomies, our companions, our sustainers, and our inspiration. Why wouldn't we have to answer to them? If we ever get put on trial for our clear cuts, our fossil fuel consumption, and our plastics, we'll come up very short. We need to change the way that we look at the world. So, these folks that are being uh, judged by God and the created world, these unfaithful folk in Micah 6, they decided they wanted to do a big gesture to make up for all they had done wrong. So they, they knew they messed up, they knew it, and so they were going to get really creative with just making sure it was all fixed all at once. So they decided they were going to do, maybe, you know, offer God some things. So they said, okay, how about some burnt offerings? How about that? That'll make you real happy, right? Thousands of rams. How about that? Okay, 10,000 rivers of oil. And then it escalated and got real dark. How about our firstborn children? Yikes. They came up with everything. Anything they could do to just make it go away. Can we just fix this today? What will it take to just make it go away so that we can just keep on going? 
But God said no. Instead, God invited them to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. No big one-time event that's going to fix it all, but a faithful relationship with God and the world step by step, day by day. Similarly, Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth about their penchant for big gestures and, and earthly wisdom. They, like us, wanted to be big and important and have some undeniable, unrefutable, powerful argument to bring the world to its knees and to finally proclaim that they were right. But Paul responds, the power of God is made clear in weakness, in humility, in love, in faithfulness. If you want inspiration, look to the cross. Meanwhile, Jesus spoke these beatitudes while on the mountain, embedded in the created world, outside of the power and dominion of religion or the state, accessible to anyone who was brave enough to go out into the wild. God and Jesus dismantle anything we would be tempted to conveniently cling to for security or peace of mind. We want to believe that we will win. Jesus tells us we are blessed to lose. We want to believe that everything is going to be okay. Jesus says, sure, it's going to be okay after you pick up your cross and follow me all the way to the grave. We want to believe that we have all the answers. Jesus just laughs hilariously at that one. We want to believe that we will get out of all of this unscathed, and Jesus patiently shows us his hands, his feet, his side. We want to experience the big win and perpetual comfort. Jesus says the big win isn't what you think that it is, and comfort is overrated. There is something better. Justice. Kindness. Relationship with God, step by step. Last weekend, I had the honor of doing a Habitat for Humanity home blessing. One year before that, we had gathered on empty lots uh, where the houses now stand, and we prayed and broke ground with, um, with, our, with our shovels that had been painted gold, and this last Saturday, we finally were able to, to bless the homes. They're completed, these families that have worked so hard to live in them. And it was interesting to hear the families speak at this event. None of them spoke to the beautiful floors or the new stainless steel appliances or the lovely private lots or the proximity to schools. They spoke to what they learned along the way, step by step. They spoke of the hundreds of people who had come alongside them in some way, shape, or form to help make their dream a reality. They were moved, not primarily by the homes, although they cannot wait to start living in these homes, but by the generosity and love of people 
and the faithfulness of God. That might be closer to what blessing means. Doing justice, loving kindness, walking with God step by step. Blessing is not a state of having everything we ever wanted. Blessing is not being physical well, physically well and not grieving anything at the moment. Blessing is not having a wonderful career direct trajectory and a fat bank account. Blessing is getting to experience in God's holy now the love of God, the care of others, the mercy and justice roll down. So why is it so hard? Why do we still resist this? I mean, some of us have been hearing this our whole lives, right? Why do we keep resisting it? Father Richard Rohr has been on a roll this week in his daily email devotionals, and he's been writing on themes of relationship with God. He argues that we cannot know God, but only love God. In our culture, we rely on knowing and thinking and having everything figured out before we move forward, but that is not how we define relationship, right? There is no thinking that we can do to grasp God's self and hold on to God's truth. There is only living and loving and walking step by step. The devotional that Richard Rohr uh, wrote reads, God is incomprehensible to the intellect. Nobody's mind is powerful enough to grasp who God is. We can only know God by experiencing God's love. God can be loved, but not thought. John of the Cross and many other mystics say the same thing, and Christians could have saved ourselves so much fighting and division if we had just taught this one truth. By love, God can be embraced and held, but not by thinking. That is blessing. We want to come in and say, okay, we've messed up, but we've thought of a great idea. We have this great idea to fix it. Here's this wonderful sacrifice. Here's this new plan that we have to make it all work. Instead, God reaches out God's hand to us and invites us into loving relationship. Step by step. We are blessed when we find ourselves loving God rather than trying to fix things with one grand, sweeping, amazing, profound gesture. We are blessed when we step out of trying to figure everything out and instead faithfully walk the next step in front of us. We are blessed when we feel like it, and even more so when we don't. We are blessed in God's holy now, loving God, doing justice, loving kindness, step by step. I guess that is what Jesus was talking about all along. Amen.